Hello, powerful people, and welcome back to the Power at Work blog. My name is Seth Harris. I'm a senior fellow at the Birds Center for Social Change. So delighted to have you back on the Power at Work blog for a Power at Work blog labor reporters roundtable. These are always a lot of fun. We'll be talking with Lauren Gurley of the Washington Post and Nick Needswadek of Politico. Uh, we'll talk about the latest stories involving workers and unions, worker power, and collective action in the U.S. today. Uh, and there's a chance that you might learn something that you couldn't find in their stories that are published in those outlets. Uh, and maybe I'll coax an opinion out of one or both of them as well. But before we get started with our interview, you should know that the Power at Work blog is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which connects over 100 radio shows and podcasts. To learn more about the network or to find other labor radio shows and podcasts, please go to www.laborradionetwork.org. And if you want to listen to or download any or all the Power at Work broadcasts, they're available for streaming and download on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Overcast, any commercial provider. Just search Power at Work on your preferred commercial provider today, and you will find us. And while you're there, how about if you give us a five-star rating? It helps other people who are interested in this kind of content to find us. We'd really appreciate it, and they will too. We're talking about the stories that affect workers, worker power, collective action, and unions in particular. We're going to discuss news about protests and strikes involving employers like Alaska Airlines and Anheuser-Busch. We're going to discuss the latest corporate assault against the National Labor Relations Board. And we'll dive into a couple of other stories that you've been reading about in your favorite journalism outlet. Our guests today are featured in two prominent national outlets, and they're both terrific at their jobs. Lauren Gurley is the labor reporter for The Washington Post, where she covers unions, the labor movement, and the economic forces that shape workers' lives in the United States. And she previously had worked uh, covering labor and tech at Vice's motherboard. Nick Nitzwedek is a labor reporter for Politico, where he covers developments at the U.S. Department of Labor, my former home, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the National Labor Relations Board, as well as broader labor-related developments in Congress and the economy. He's previously written for the Times Union and the Wall Street Journal. Those are our guests. You are our audience. Let's get to our conversation about the state of labor reporting and the hottest stories of the hour on the Power at Work blog. Enjoy. So it's terrific to have both of you here. Thanks for, thanks for being here. I, one of my very favorite things to do uh, on this blog is to turn the tables on the reporters who interview me and try to come up with as many very difficult multi-part questions as I can for you guys to answer in public. So that's what I'm going for here. But uh, this is really about you and what you can tell us about what's going on with labor. So I'm really, I'm really excited about it. So let's, let's jump right in. And Lauren, I want to start with you because you got a big scoop recently, which is the coin of the realm in journalism, uh, that in good writing and good reporting. So you reported that the International Brotherhood of Teamsters made a $45,000 contribution to the Republican National Committee. Now, I am old enough to remember a time when that would not have been news, when the labor movement was involved with Republicans as well as with Democrats, and there were labor Republicans as well as labor Democrats. But now, uh, a, a union and especially the Teamsters giving money to the RNC is a really, really big deal. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. One is, what do you think the contribution means? And why do you think the Teamsters did it? Sure. Um, so like you said, this is highly unusual. Um, in recent years, I went back through the um, the campaign, campaign finance data, and it looks like um, the last time the Teamsters made a major donation to the to the GOP was in around 2006. Um, 
so it's been almost two decades. Uh, and, um, you know, I think we should also note that the Teamsters also made, gave a maximum donation to the DNC. Um, in fact, they've donated $135,000 this campaign cycle. Um, the, the Teamsters has only donated so far to the RNC's convention fund, which means it's not for general purpose use. That was before the $45,000 went. That's also the same donation they made to the DNC. So some people like don't these cancel each other out. Um, you know, I think it means a lot of things. I think, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, they would like to put pressure and sort of use leverage Put pressure on the Biden campaign, but also use their leverage in Washington. Um, a lot of other unions, basically all of them at this point, have endorsed for president, um, and uh, that was extremely early. Um, you know, like I think you and I have discussed this before, Seth. But um, you know, typically unions don't start endorsing in presidential um, election years until about April. Um, in fact, last last election season in 2020, the Teamsters didn't endorse until. Uh, August of 2020. So, um, and there were some, and there were some unions that waited until much later than that. There were there were unions that were emailing their endorsements like election night. I, there were some folks <laughs> who were really, yeah. really late yeah. to the game. Yeah. Um, so this is not on them withholding their endorsement, trying to sort of use their leverage um, in this process is not at all unusual. Like we're saying, the donation is unusual. They haven't done anything like this. Um, in recent years, they do usually make small donations to like Republican candidates, um, but nothing of this size to to the RNC before. So, um, you know, I think one thing that's important to know, and you know, Seth, Seth, you and I have talked about this also before, is that um, Sean O'Brien, who is the the democratically elected president of the Teamsters, who ran as a reform candidate and sort of won in twenty twenty one against sort of the establishment favorite candidate. Um, he he ran as sort of an outsider and on, on the on the promise to reform the union and really to to give um to give workers a say or members a say in sort of big decision making and and O'Brien is very much aware that a lot of his members are Republican voters and registered Republicans even Trump supporters and I've heard from like internal polling in past years about thirty percent of um, Teamsters. Uh, Identify as Republicans, um, probably another thirty percent of Democrats, and a third as Independents. Um, so uh, he's very aware that um, you know he has a lot of members who who are Republicans, and I think he's trying to sort of acknowledge that, and that he's sort of looking around and taking taking um, uh, taking it all in, not not sort of dismissing any candidate too early, including Trump, who you know maybe they think he has a pretty good chance of winning, and um, you know this donation. Uh, feels like it's a way of, um, you know, acknowledging that um, if it does happen, you know, the Teamsters uh, did meet with Trump twice last month um, and are sort of taking them seriously. I, I do not think that the Teamsters will end up, um, and either of you can disagree with me, will end up endorsing Trump. I think uh, Sean O'Brien made it pretty clear when he met with Trump last month, um, you know, not explicitly, but uh, sort of implicitly in his remarks after meeting with Trump at the Teamsters headquarters in D.C. He said, you know, Biden has been a wonderful president for unions um, and did not say the, the same of, of Trump. So so I think, um, you know, this this will probably play out for a few more months. You have a lot of Teamsters members who on the, on the progressive wing who are um, really upset about this donation, really upset about these meetings with Trump. Um, they're saying, you know, we understand that a lot of our members are Republicans or Trump supporters, but the job of a union leader is to um, is to sort of inform workers about what their best interests are in terms of, you know, who's going to lead it and their record on labor. And that's, that's um, you know, not what's happening by donating to the Teamsters or, you know, meeting with Trump. Um, so I think I think we can expect to see this play out. Uh, I don't think they're they're necessarily planning to endorse super soon, but um, I think I think if, and and feel free to disagree with me. I think they will eventually fall behind. No, I I I, I agree with that. And, and Nick, let me give you a chance to get in on this conversation because um, you're talking to people in the labor movement and also people in the Biden administration who, you know, let's say are, relate to labor or are connected to labor. Um, there was a lot of upset 
a lot of upset, as Lauren was saying, around not just the donation, but the meetings with Trump. There was a famous photo of Sean O'Brien with Trump that was like Twitter wildfire. It went it went crazy on social media. What are you hearing about without disclosing any confidences? And that'll be true throughout. I'm going to ask you, what are you hearing? But I don't want you to tell me from whom you're hearing it. But what are you hearing about this? And and is there a sense that um, maybe this is an effort to give Sean O'Brien the room to endorse Biden without disrespecting his members? Yeah, so I definitely think that there was perhaps some annoyance, especially with kind of the drip, drip, drip nature of the eventual meeting with Trump, because first there was... Um, they had met with other candidates, including um, like Marianne Williamson, RFK Jr., Cornell West, um, Asa Hutchinson on the GOP side. So they had been doing some of these other meetings initially, and I don't think they particularly gave too much notice of it. And, but then it was like the meeting with like where Sean O'Brien did take the photo with Trump, um, where he kind of got him to commit to going to the headquarters. And then I think kind of like... Um, just kind of that playing out over a, a series of a couple of weeks kind of, I think, started to kind of annoy them to some extent, just because it kind of like keeps the potential that they wouldn't embrace Biden kind of in the news more than perhaps they would like. And it does distract from, as Lauren said, like the vast, vast, vast majority of national unions have already come out in favor of the president's reelection, doing it in the AFL-CIO's case, the earliest they've kind of gotten on board and they made a big show of that and kind of got a lot of constituent unions um, and some like SCIU that are not part of the AFL CIO. They also have come out very early to kind of do a show of force. And, but then it does um, kind of highlight the Teamsters and a couple other ones, uh, the firefighters and who, who haven't uh, yet endorsed. And to various degrees, they're kind of, they've told me that they're kind of like adhering to their normal timelines. They have internal processes that they're going through informing members, what have you. And so I don't think the Biden people are particularly worried that, like like you said, like that there is an eventual endorsement of from the Teamsters to Trump, but they would prefer to have it sewn up, obviously, versus not. And as Lauren said, like there is, is the Teamsters, especially because like, they, I mean, they're in a lot of different areas, but like their bread and butter is kind of like, warehouse work, trucking, um, things like that, where you can kind of like uh, imagine that even compared to other unions that are very blue collar, have a lot of uh, Trump supporters that the Teamsters especially might feel extra receptive to not wanting to let those parts of their membership feel um, excluded or shut out or silenced. So, but there are obviously like the UAW, you could make a very similar case and they've taken a much more aggressive tact of at least um, President Sean Fain in that case has said, like, talked about Trump in very unsparing terms and made clear that uh, it's not a good option for U UAW members in his in his opinion. Um, so you, you can kind of see the, the stylistic contrast, but um, especially for the Teamsters, they have a huge membership. Um, I think it's close to two million members. Um, but at the same time, that membership is very much in flux. Like when I see decertification elections to kind of kick out the union, um, more often than not, it really it is Teamsters locals, like probably mm. seven or eight out of 10 of the ones I see. And so like, sure, it may not be like a huge, like it may be only a couple dozen workers or what have you, but like there is a much more active threat of like shrinking um, in a lot of these like places, but Teamsters have probably been in for 30, 40, 70 years in some of these places and having to kind of be, make sure that like Teamsters, like Teamster members want to continue being Teamsters members and not feeling disconnected from the affiliation is like a very pressing concern for Teamsters and other unions. But like, I, I feel like more than others, the Teamsters probably do feel a little bit of um, heat, even if ultimately they do, um, as I think is, broadly expected publicly and privately that eventually they will um, align with Biden. Yeah, that that need to stay connected to members is especially pressing for a member elected, democratically elected, as Lauren said, president 
who talks about engaging the membership in the governance of the union as one of his core principles. So he's he's got to actually model that behavior. He's actually got to live up to that promise. And I think that's what he's trying to do here. So I, 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 I think I'm in, in strong agreement with both of you. Okay, so let's now turn to the category of stories that basically have guaranteed that you both will have jobs, at least in the near term, but probably for the long term, and that is strikes, right? We, we 2023, as you know, was a landmark year uh, for strikes. Uh, our friends at the, the Labor Action Tracker from Cornell University and the University of Illinois compared 2023 to 2022, and the number of strikes went up 9%. The number of workers out on strike went out went up 141%. And the number of days of work lost to strikes went up over 500%, largely because of the four strikes that, that you both covered, uh, the, lar- the four very, very large strikes that you both covered. And, and we're beginning to see some activity in 2024, right? On Valentine's Day, Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash drivers engaged in a job action. Last week, flight attendants at Alaska Airlines voted more than 99% to authorize their union to call a strike, although striking in that industry is a a long, slow, complicated process. It's like watching paint dry just because (laughs) of the role of the National Mediation Board. There are 400 Teamsters on strike at Molson Coors, there are 5,000 Teamsters who have authorized a strike and may very well go out on strike any day now at Anheuser-Busch. Um, and, and those are not even the biggest groups of workers where there are going to be negotiations this year, right? You've got Boeing, you've got the postal workers, you've got big city school districts, you've got AT&T work. I mean, there's a lot of negotiations that are going to begin this year. And let me say two more in Hollywood, where they seem to really like the drama of strikes. I don't know why that is. So, Lauren, let me ask you very simply, is this the new normal? Um, Is hot labor summer becoming the endless summer? Um, You know, it's a great question. I think that um, there are sort of two factors that come to my mind when I think about this moment sort of um, dying down a bit. One is that is the state of the labor market. So like the labor market has been extremely and exceptionally strong, um, you know, coming basically coming out of the pandemic when businesses started reopening, tons of demand for labor. Workers have, you know, had the upper hand for a long time. There were two job openings for every unemployed worker in the United States. That has given, you know, unions a lot of, well, individual workers, a lot of leverage to, you know, bargain over, you know, raises individually with their employers, but also unions collectively to, um, you know, make very big demands um, from these companies that have done very well during the pandemic. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think there are predictions that the labor market is going to be losing some of that steam, you know, interest rates are very high over the over the next year, I think there's predictions that the Unemployment rate will climb, um, you know, sort of about well above 4%. It's been under 4% for over two years now. And that will sort of give workers a bit less leverage in a lot of industries to uh, <clears throat> um, at the bargaining table. Um, the other factor is, you know, uh, a Trump um, victory in in November. Um, you know, Biden, the Biden administration has really given a lot of legitimacy and, and um, you know, support to um, to unions and to workers in all sorts of ways at the NLRB, at the Department of Labor, um, you know, by going and standing on the picket line for the first time with UAW workers when they struck uh, last fall. Um, you know, President Trump's record on labor, um, you know, despite, you know, his his um, claim to be, you know, pro worker pro worker is um is definitely very different from Biden's. And so, you know, you could see the environment changing a bit um with if the labor market sort of loses steam or if Trump gets reelected. That said, I think some of the momentum will not be going away anytime soon. Um, you know, people are reacting and you can see this in the polling numbers from Gallup. Um unions are extremely popular among Americans. Um, people are reacting to years of stagnant wages, to you know, really high corporate profits, stock buybacks executive compensation, um, things that, um, and, and just general sort of inequality measures that um, have not really shifted at all um, in recent years. And so I could see 
um, you know, this to that continuing to sort of um, buoy some of this momentum um, going forward. And I think, like you said, there are some very large contract expirations. They're not, there are none at the UAW that are that big, I believe, or at the Teamsters right. that are that big, I believe. And those are sort of these two new unions that um, have the new leadership that's, you know, trying to be very aggressive. Um, there are other unions that are, um, you know, aggressive, but, you know, like the postal workers, their strike is also expired, or their contract is also expired this, this year, though they cannot go right. on strike legally. Um, you know, the Chicago Teachers Union um, also contract expiring this summer. I think you mentioned that. Anyways, I think I think the contract expirations um, do make you know likelihood that this year will be big, but I don't know you know beyond that whether this is the new normal given those other yeah. factors. And neither you nor I, to, we should have mentioned. We didn't mention. We should have mentioned the East Coast and Gulf Coast longshore mm -hmm. workers have oh, a right. contract expiration, and there's a lot of rising militancy in that union they, they have a longtime leader who is not viewed as being especially militant but there's a lot of unhappiness with a lot of the same issues that the west coast longshore workers um uh, uh just addressed in their contract with the, the pacific maritime association that it's very hard to know how that one is going to come out and that could have huge effects for the economy as a whole so that's a big one nick i want to keep you on the same subject but i want to ask it in a slightly different way. You know, strikes are important as economic weapons in the context of collective bargaining. A union strike, you know, the UAW gave a perfect example of this, and the, the Teamsters gave a perfect example of the threat of a strike in the UPS negotiations. You strike in order to force the other side to increase their offers at the bargaining table as much as you can on the issues that you care about the most. But Strikes can also have a, an effect on organizing. And from the conversations that you're having in your own assessment, are, are these heightened levels of worker activism that are manifesting in strikes, is it the expectation that that's going to turn into further increases in union membership and maybe turning around the long-term decline in union density? So. It's kind of a tricky question because, like you said, there's not a one-to-one uh, -one connection where you can go from A to B to C and kind of end up with more organizing. But there is um, Sean Fain at UAW is kind of doing this explicitly where he's trying to parlay the contract gains they had in the big three and use that as a selling point to unionize um, companies like Toyota, Volkswagen, uh, basically the non-big three, and try to get into, especially like EV batteries and all these other companies that for years have kind of had a little bit of an advantage on the big three because either they're a foreign automaker or in like Tesla's case, they're just a non-union shop. And so their labor costs are a little different. Um, and there's a little bit of a advantage in that. And that's part of the reason why they've historically resisted unionizations because they want to maintain that goal. So you can see unions try to kind of link the two and kind of show like, oh, if th there's power in this, both in terms of the contracts at hand, but also like you could also benefit um, speaking to like a hypothetical, like non-union worker and kind of use that as like, um, here's your chance to potentially get a lot more than you can on your own. Um, and in the Biden years, you have seen an uptick in, um, various stats with the NLB, whether it be about like union petitions, um, unfair labor practice charges, um, which kind of go, they tick up kind of in concert, but they're not, they're not directly like one-to-one. -one. Um, so you have seen an uptick in activity, but um, some, a good chunk of the activity has been a lot, very much in kind of the Starbucks mold where it's 12, 20 workers um, at a given store and not like say, some huge um, Amazon factory with one notable exception um, or warehouse where you could be talking about thousands of workers. And so even if it does seem like there is a big uptick in activity, which there is to some degree, if it's at this um, much more molecular level, you don't quite have the tens or hundreds of thousands of new potential union members. And that's kind of why there sometimes seems to be a little bit of a disconnect where it seems like unions are on the upswing, but then when you look at the data, it seems a lot more modest than uh, you might get from other uh, indicators. And so sometimes that can also just be like 
a lagging indicator. And so like, it hasn't just shown up in the data yet, but it's also like kind of like where the organizing activity has been, has really been a little bit more on this smaller scale, coffee shops, retail stores, and a little less, you haven't quite seen like a huge groundswell in these big factories, warehouses, where you can get hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people in one shop. That's obviously a huge organizing lift. And that is kind of like, that takes a lot of resources. There's no guarantee that you win. You could spend years organizing just to like lose a union vote, which is what happened when UAW did this a few years ago in Tennessee. And now they're trying to gear up again um, to try to like take another stab at it, but there's no guarantee you win this time around either. And that's obviously money that you can't get back. And that's kind of the, the calculation that unions make. And so they sometimes are very conservative with new organizing and from uh, kind of like activists um, within the labor movement. That is one of their big critiques is that establishment unions, they're very cautious, protectionist of their existing members and prioritize that and contract negotiations, things like that versus organizing new members. And that's like a big point of tension um, and it kind of just comes down to this uncertainty. So perhaps if unions feel more confident that they can win when they take big swings, then you may see more of it. And that's kind of in the vein of, like I said, the UAW, where they are, like, they feel the time is right versus, say, like in the Great Recession, where it was very much a retrenchment, try to preserve as much as you can, keep Detroit alive just to have an industry to even work with, let alone like try to get as much as you possibly can. And so that's kind yes. of the difference so in wanna, this moment. I want to particularly ask you, though, about the relationship between strikes and organizing in this way, because there is a, I think there is a received wisdom, some of which you were just talking about, which is that more worker activism means there's going to be more organizing, more activity. And as you said, we're seeing activity in some of the numbers at the NLRB, uh, some of the state numbers. We have seen union membership growth over the last two years, although not enough to make uh, to have union density increase. But, you know, I, I think about some of those workers who are working in non-union plants and they see a union go out on strike. And so people are out of work and they're getting strike benefits, but nothing like what they're earning. It's very disruptive. It creates tension with coworkers. It creates tension with people in the workplace, with supervisors. You know, certainly management doesn't like it when unions go out on strike. And, you know, most people just want to live their lives. They don't want to be in combat with their employers. You know, they're not ideological about it. They just, they need a paycheck. They need a better paycheck. They need better benefits so their kids have good quality health care. They'd like to be able to save for their kids to go to college or to be able to have a house or whatever it is that they, they want in their lives. They want to be able to live their lives. And they don't want to have to be in a fight unless they really have to be. So I wonder if... Uh, this is sort of the critique of strikes as an organizing tool, because, you know, a lot of people who are very, very activist and who live to be in fights in order to achieve justice. I wonder if they're a little disconnected from that reality. What's your what's your sense of that? Uh, that definitely could be the case. But I think that the way you kind of bridge the gap is if you can show that, or at least make the case that like, it's not like striking for the sake of striking, it's striking to get X, Y, Z, whether it's higher pay, better work conditions or certain job protections, guarantees, uh, what have you. So it's like, cause that is ultimately like, if you go on a strike for six months or whatever, and then at the end of it, you basically limp back and don't really have anything to like show for it. That is the type of dispiriting type thing that really can, chill organizing or activism in general. And it's the idea that you do it to get um, better terms. And that's ultimately the selling point. Cause you're right. There probably are a lot of people that ideally would just like to go to work and go home and they don't want to be on a picket line if they can avoid it. But it's when you can convince people that it's worth it and that the status quo can't hold, that is kind of where the, the case can be made. The Power at Work blog is a project of the Burns Center for Social Change at Northeastern University. The Burns Center develops innovative, participatory, and equitable approaches to solving public problems using new technology. Our faculty and fellows are accomplished, nationally recognized change makers. Interested in learning more? Go to burns.northeastern.edu and sign up for our mailing list. And you can follow us on social media at Burns Center on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram.
the Burns Center for Social Change, from demanding change to making it. So let me, I want to switch to a different question about a different kind of organizing. Um, and uh, it's a, a series of developments that have come up in California that I know you have both been paying attention to. And I, I, I guess my question, my ultimate question to you is going to be, is this a one-off or is this the beginning of a trend? And here, so here's what's happening uh, for our audience in California. And there are two parts to it. SEIU lobbied the California legislature and Governor Newsom to create a fast food council. And the fast food council is going to set working conditions for fast food workers in California. In fact, they've already succeeded in raising the minimum wage to $20 an hour, right? Forget about fight for 15. It's like preserve 20 now. Um, and that is what, what people in labor relations world call sectoral bargaining, right? You have the government and business and labor sit down and every worker in the industry will be governed by the working conditions that this fast food council sets. And let me say SEIU has been the leader in the labor movement in support of sectoral bargaining. Um, the union is now organizing a California fast food workers union to claim the labor seat at the table at this fast food council. And they're organizing workers. I don't think the expectation is that they're going to bargain with individual employers. I think it's all about sectoral bargaining and having a voice in the fast food council, although they are going to advocate for workers and they may take on job actions and protests and strikes and other things. But the principal goal is to be part of this fast food council process. I'm not sure they would say it that way, but that's my sense of it. Okay, so Lauren, when you're this, this is a controversial idea. Holy cow. This is really controversial inside the labor movement. So when you talk to people in the movement about and talk to people around the movement and sort of people like me who sort of hang around and hope that somebody will ask us a question so we can offer our opinions. Is, is this an enterprise that can only succeed in California or is there some hope that this can expand to other industries and that this can expand to other states? I mean, I think SEIU definitely hopes that um, and thinks that this is a model that can expand to other industries in other states. I mean, you've sort of seen it already expand to other industries in other states, right? Like in um, Michigan and Minnesota, there are councils now that are made up of employers, unions, and workers for nursing home employees. Um, and then in Colorado, I believe this year, uh, there are similar, and in New York, there's um, similar councils for farm workers. Um, so, uh, it definitely, um, in other places, in other states, I think there are a number of factors. So it tends to be, it, it looks like it's, it's, um, these types of councils tend to get set up for, uh, very low wage workers or workers who are excluded from the NLRA. So domestic workers, farm workers are not. Fast food workers are. Fast yeah, yeah. Are but they're low, they're, under the act. Sure, sure. They're low wage workers. So low wage workers and those who are excluded, I think, right. are the ones that look like are are tending to sort of um, be test cases for this model. Um, and I think the the deal with fast food workers is that um, it's an extremely fissured uh, industry, right? You have it looks like you have three employers, like McDonald's, Burger King, and the other you know top fast food fast food employers, but most of those workers are employees of franchisees, um, of which there are thousands and thousands in the United States. And that level of, you know, workplace that's so small, um, you know, makes it very hard to organize um, large groups of people. So this is sort of why SEIU has taken this, uh, this to be the, the best strategy for organizing um, these workers. So I think I think it's pretty optimistic that uh, they can re recreate this model in other places. Um, in, in these sorts of industries, I would also say that it's extremely important. Like, I don't know how well this is going to work in the South. Um, SEIU also launched last year the Union of Southern Service Workers, right. which is for all sorts of low-wage workers. There's sort of, it's like a similar model where um, it's not recognized by the NLRB. There was no election. Workers can join and pay dues, and then they get, like, protections in return um, and support from the, in the backing of the union. Um, 
But I would say but that seems you know, like. Let me just say, the Union of Southern Service Workers looks to me to be a different model. I don't get the sense that SEIU is trying to. Right, they're not trying to get a government sure. enterprise set up that gives them sectoral bargaining. I, sure. it, it strikes me that this is a union. It's almost like a members-only union where you're an advocacy group, almost like a worker center. You're an advocacy group. You go out on strikes. You get publicity, and you put pressure on employers, but without the bargaining. Although, ultimately, maybe they want to get to bargaining. It's not entirely clear to me. I think they do with uh, Southern Service Workers, at least that's the very, very long-term vision. But the, the other thing I was going to say is I only really see this working in states where you have like a Democratic governor or legislature that's willing to, or depending on how it gets implemented into law, you need a lot of sort of liberal forces that are, that are willing to um, make this happen. I do not see it happening in the South um, or, you know, um, other states, right-to-work states generally, which are the, the states that really are you know, need to, to build union density. Um, but uh, those, are, those are some of my thoughts. Yeah. Nick, I, I, I want to stick with you and sectoral bargaining. As I said, this is, this is a controversial thing within the labor movement. Um, and uh, um, what's your sense of why? Why are folks trepidatious about this? This is, you know, I, I, you know, there, there are sort of the there, there's there's sort of three philosophies. One is we've got ten percent union density in the United States. Let's try anything. We've got a second philosophy, which is related to the first, which is labor law. It makes it too hard to organize. We need to find other pathways. This is one that we know works in other countries. Let's try it. And then the third is you're undermining. You're putting at risk the things that we already have, which is the exclusive majority representation model that most unions operate under. What, what, are, what are those within the labor movement who are criticizing this worried about? I mean, I think it really is that more or less since kind of the, the Reagan era, or if you really want to go all the way back like to Tap Hartley, it's just like, labor law has been not it's been very static and it's not exactly very strong especially when you compare to other countries in europe what have you and so just like the risk of it backfiring is like a real thing and unions have seen especially as the courts in recent years and decades have kind of started to uh move in a more conservative direction like even long-standing things that had kind of like been within their operating um mantras like uh like the janice decision kind of chips away at public unions in a way that like they hadn't anticipate or like they can't operate quite in the same way that they had the decades prior and so it's just like it tends to be that like when these things get brought up to legal challenges. A lot of times it doesn't go union's way. And ultimately that leads them further behind than where they started. And that is kind of like, kind of like burning your hands a little bit. And so they kind of realize uh, there is trepidation on that front. At the same time, the sectoral bargaining um, aspect of it gives you the opportunity to have a much deeper influence across an industry much quicker than, cause like, to use the Starbucks example, going store by store by store is thousands and thousands of stores. And that's like a huge resource lift. And then if you can consolidate that in this like government intersection um, of a council, um, even if it does still have to technically kind of push some of the stuff to the Department of Labor within California. And so um, you don't have like one, like you don't have entirely direct control over, but you have like a pretty direct say over a good chunk of at least one industry in a way that you can't do going store by store by store, even if yes, um, proving that you have majority support in every store, it does give you a legitimacy that um, you somewhat kind of skirt around by kind of imposing it um, on a sector um, when not everyone yeah. in that sector started as a union. Yeah, they, can I just say that Starbucks organizing campaign has taught a lot of people a lot of things. Um, one is be careful what you ask for. You organize in one Starbucks shop in Buffalo, New York, and all of a sudden you start a wildfire and you're organizing all over the country. But the other is 400 stores or however many we're at now, almost 400 stores organized out of 9,000 is not enough to bring pressure on the company to get them to sit down and bargain at the table. And the law is not effective 
in doing that. I, let me just add two other comments about about this sectoral uh, story, and then I want to move on to another story. Um, there, I have heard some criticisms that that sector this model of sectoral bargaining is not democratic. It's not worker voice. Um, you don't have workers voting in election. You don't have them voting on a contract. It's being done through government. Now, of course, governments are elected in a democratic way, but the worker voice, um, despite the organizing that's going on, the argument goes, is not giving workers a truly democratic say in the process. It's the unions that are getting a voice in the process. Now, I think of unions as being democratic institutions, and therefore workers are getting a voice, but it is a different approach to workplace democracy than you would get in a traditional exclusive representation model. And then the second concern um, uh, that I've heard about it is that, uh, and it's it's the point that Nick made, and, and I say this, and this is actually something I worry about as somebody who's been spent a lot of his career in government is, government is not a reliable protector and defender of workers. It just isn't. Uh, it's It gets starved of resources. It gets taken off course. It can be dominated by a political philosophy that is anti-worker. We see that at the federal level, we see that at the state level. And so if you have a system that depends very heavily on government power as opposed to worker power, a change in the government or a change in the politics can really end up hurting workers in a very dramatic way. Now, again, if it's California, if it's New York, if it's Illinois, that's one thing. If it's Oregon, if it's Washington, it's that's. But in states where you're not really sure what's going to end up happening politically, there's a much, much, much greater risk. And it may be that there was, the, the, what that means is it's a limited solution in certain states, not every state. We'll, we'll have to see. I think it's a fascinating story. It's a potentially very, very, very important development in labor relations uh, in the United States. And I'm looking forward to you both writing about it soon. I mean, so I can know what to think. You can stay up to date with the latest news about workers, worker power, and unions by subscribing to the Power at Work blog. You'll receive the weekly download, a Power at Work newsletter sent straight to your inbox. The weekly download collects about two dozen of the week's articles, academic studies, press releases, podcasts, and videos from across the internet. We find the stories and deliver them directly to you. So subscribe to the weekly download right now on the front page of the Power at Work blog. Go to poweratwork.us. Okay, let me let me turn to uh, one more story, and then I'm going to have a big, big question for you at the end—a really hard one. Um, but but here's an easy one, and Nick, this is something you've been covering uh, a good bit, and that is some of the some of the big legal assaults on the National Labor Relations Board. I talked with some of my law professor buddies on a blogcast about this, that uh, one that we just released earlier this week. We're recording this Friday, uh, February 23rd. Uh, and they had big lawyer thinks, thinking things about it, big lawyer thoughts about it. Um, but I want to get your take on it as well. So let me just sort of string them together. One, you got some big, big brand name companies that are just blatantly violating labor law and don't really seem to care <laughs> very much that that's what they're doing or that's actually seemingly the strategy. Um, you also have some brand name companies, Amazon, Starbucks, Trader Joe's and SpaceX that are arguing that the NLRB is unconstitutional because of the job protections that NLRB members and ALJs get. Um, you have several lawsuits that are advancing in Texas courts um, that are similarly challenging the constitutionality. Maybe those are the same cases that are ch challenging the constitutionality of the NLRB. And you have a case pending at the Supreme Court right now that Starbucks brought called Starbucks versus McKinney which is trying to weaken the NLRB's ability to get injunctions that get illegally fired workers back to work, among among other things. So let me ask you the question, Nick, because uh, you've been very close to the story. You covered the NLRB uh, for Politico. Um, first of all, is this new or is this just sort of more of uh, corporate opposition to government, corporate opposition to worker power? That's the first thing. Uh, and second, have we switched from efforts by the corporate world to simply weaken the NLRB and weaken worker power, or are they now just trying to blow the whole thing up? Is this a whole new effort to just blow the thing to smithereens? 
Well, so it's and now I, a... let me just say in your answer to this question, I do want you to name the names of the management lawyers you're talking to. <laughs> it is a it's definitely an extension of trying to um, weaken the NLRB more generally, or just like kind of prevent it from kind of getting stronger as a enforcement regulator against um, employers. Um, so it's definitely like a continuation of this broader term trend. Um, but it, this obviously has escalated very quickly where I think the first one was started by SpaceX. Um, Elon Musk has uh, been very clear. He doesn't uh, see the NLRB as particularly legitimate. And um, I think that's probably why they kind of like were the first ones to kind of jump in with a lawsuit. But um, when you, like it's quickly been adopted as a position by Trader Joe's, Amazon, uh, others. And, and granted, part of that is because the world of the, the lawyers is like relatively small. So there's like some overlapping circles. That's part of this, but, um, it's, it's to some extent, there's no downside to this. Cause like, if you throw this challenge out there and it ultimately gets rejected, you're at the same spot that you would be if you had never raised it in the first place. Whereas if you can convince a judge that the NLRB is unconstitutionally structured or violates your, uh, constitutional right to a civil trial, and then you can throw the entire agency, uh, in, in limbo. And basically the would have to spend very, several years like sorting out what they can and can't do because the NLRB can't really structure itself. It would require new legislation and that's very unlikely to happen. And so then you could just kind of like have this like, um, like court broken um, agency. And that would be to some extent beneficial to some of these companies that feel that the NLRB is a very unfair agency towards businesses or generally. Um, so there's very little downside, obviously, the NLRB's original uh, constitutionality was like adjudicated in a Supreme Court case, and I think it was 1937 or 1939, but that was a 5-4 split. Um, the court now has a 6-3 to three conservative majority, so like theoretically, if it got that far down the road, it, you could um, have a different outcome. So it, it it's partly also just to like, um, even if like, you just make the NLRB have to like defend itself in like 20 different federal courts, like at the same time, like the agency is stretched very thin just to do its day to day, let alone to kind of like have to constantly um, defend its like existence. Um, and so there's just kind of like an ability to kind of like stretch them thin just by kind of like raising these legal challenges. And uh, like I said, if, if, if like the courts don't buy it, there's still like really no downside. You, these companies are to some extent already getting headlines about being union busters or anti-worker, what have you. And so it's not like they're risking too much extra bad PR. And so it, it that's part of the reason why you're seeing like the calculated risks it, it's, it, that they're aligning right now. Yeah. Lauren, I want to ask you about that. One of the things that's really striking about several of these companies, take SpaceX out because they're not a consumer brand, but Amazon is a consumer company. Uh, Starbucks is a consumer company. Trader Joe's is not just a consumer company. It aims at a particular slice of the population, just like Whole Foods does, that you think would say, oh, that's not right. That's not, they're not doing the right thing here. And they would, there sort of be a values clash. And, you know, Nick is right, be, partly because of the writing and reporting that you both have done, but also all of your uh, sort of competitor colleagues out there who are writing extensively also about these companies. They, they've been painted with this brush, but there have been no consequences. Is, is it just that the American people don't care? Are they overloaded? Is it, is it that they agree with the companies? Um, you know, there, there are people who are outraged and are going down the street for a latte to Starbucks. Uh, help me to understand what is, what you, what is going on here and what you're hearing from the people that you're talking to about why it is that these consumer brands still have consumers. Um, yeah, that's a great question. So I think that, you know, while unions are extremely popular historically right now in the U.S., um, you know, a lot, the, the vast majority of people are not in unions, let like 10% of Americans are in unions. 
a lot of people are, do not have a labor sort of consciousness in the U.S. Like your average person does not um, sort of care about this stuff or pay attention to these things. Um, and there isn't sort of the cultural culture or sort of, um, yeah, like political environment where people are thinking of this as sort of like the main types of injustices that are happening every day to people. So, uh, you know, I think while it does upset a lot of people who are labor adjacent and we hear from those people all the time and they're, and, and they're in the, in, on social media saying, I'm never shopping at Starbucks or, or Amazon again, I canceled my Prime account uh, yesterday. Um, you know, mo most people, this is having no, no effect on. And I think um, companies know that and um, they are taking advantage of a moment um, when we have very conservative Supreme Court to make pretty radical arguments. Um, lots of, they feel more comfortable making radical arguments right now. Like Amazon has been extremely anti-union this whole time. They, this is, why are they doing this now? Why are they doing it this week? I think one is the, the political environment is sort of right for making these kinds of arguments. And then also like Elon Musk, right, is uh, leading the way, which he tends to do in terms of, I mean, this happened when he was talking when he took over Twitter, he was firing all these um, workers and making this argument, making an argument that it was like for right to, uh, return to work reasons, like you could fire all these people. Then you have all these tech companies go along and copy him. So I think once Elon Musk did it, <laughs> all these companies sort of, it opened the floodgates for everyone else to, to feel comfortable doing it too. And yeah, I, I, I don't think your average American cares too much about what's going on. Let me just say, I'm very uncomfortable living in a country where Elon Musk is the norm setter. That makes me, that makes me very uncomfortable, comfortable. Uh, okay, so let's, I, I want to close with a really, really big question. I like to end these broadcasts with a really big question to give people something to think about uh, uh, when they're finished listening or watching. Um, and just give me a short answer to this. Take, you know, take as much time as you like, but think about it as a sort of a short, short answer. What is the next big story or a big story about labor that we're going to be talking about in 2024 that we were not talking about in 2023? Lauren, let me start with you. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people, and maybe this is too wonky, so maybe I'm wrong here. I think a lot of people are being going to pay very close attention to the rollout of the IRA and the the you know, tax credits that are in it that are supposed to be going the to IRA meaning the IRA meaning not people's retirement accounts, but the Inflation <laughs> Reduction Act. Yes, sorry. Right. So there no, that's are... okay. I do I do a lot of Washington to English translating for people on the broadcast. That's okay. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, this multi billion or trillion dollar bill that has um, you know, uh billions of dollars of tax credits that are going to be going to companies that are, you know, in the clean energy space that are going to be supposedly creating, I think, 30 million jobs a year, uh, or the three million, three million, excuse me, three, three million. million jobs yeah. a year, not 30 million. Uh, but it's, that's, a, that's a ton of jobs. And a lot of the tax credits are tied to these standards around, um, you know, prevailing wage requirements and uh, apprenticeships. Um, so I think, I mean, if we're creating 3 million new union jobs a year, that is really incredible. It, it's it's game changing. It's going to be transformative. But I think there's also some loopholes that I mean, it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Um, and if it sort of transforms people's lives, I mean, if you have people who are working in dirty energy sectors who are able to, to move over to um, good union jobs, which they really are not right now in wind and solar for the most part in the U.S. Um, those are low wage jobs currently. Um, you know, it could really be transformative or you have people coming in from other industries and, you know, getting union jobs for the first time in their life and, and, and um, deindustrialized or, or very rural remote place parts of the U.S. I think it could be a game changer or not. Um, so a big story to be watching this year because those tax credits are just rolling out right now. Yeah, I actually uh, I wrote a piece predicting that union density went up in 2023 before I had seen any of the numbers and that. The story that you just told about the Inflation Reduction Act was part of why, along with the the president's bipartisan infrastructure law and also the Chips and Sciences Act, which is a big investment in semiconductor manufacturing, I said, well, those investments are beginning to roll out and certainly the infrastructure investments are beginning to roll out. And I know that a lot of unions have opened up their apprenticeship programs. And I said, and this is one of the reasons why union density is going to go up. And I was completely wrong. 
Now, I wasn't I wasn't completely wrong. Union membership went up. It just didn't go up enough. And the private sector did its part. The problem was really in the public sector. So it'll be interesting to see if 2024 is the year where these public investments, including the Inflation Reduction Act, really begin to demonstrate a big transformation in what we see. And we'll begin to see that primarily in the energy unions and in the building trades unions to start, interestingly enough. All right, Nick, same question for you. Same question for you is, uh, what is the a big labor story or the big labor story that we're going to be talking about in 2024 that we are not talking about in 2023? I think it's college athletes as employees. Um, there's the Dartmouth union vote that is supposed to happen, I think the first week of March. And I think there's a strong expectation that the players are going to vote to unionize and, um, that won't probably be official. There's going to be challenges, um, appeals, et cetera. Um, but then separately, the NLRB is also going after the university of Southern California for social media policies and technically misclassifying athletes as non-employees. It's been a big. Um, the general counsel of the NLRB has a very strong position that she believes college athletes are employees under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, that's obviously separate than other laws applying to like um, Department of Labor where minimum wage overtime, et cetera. But in terms of the context of the NLRA, she's definitely taken a firm tack on this. We have these two kind of parallel cases that I think the indications are they're probably not going to go the NCAA's way. They're separately a antitrust um I think there's a couple different antitrust cases, but one of which that the Department of Justice has signed on to challenging some of the NCAA's restrictions on student athletes' ability to change schools and other other limitations on them. Basically, like, and the NCAA in recent years has shown that, like, they can't put the genie back in the bottle when the Supreme Court rules that you have to loosen some of the restrictions on um, what you can offer scholarship athletes. Like, that opened the floodgate to... In, NIL endorsement deals, name, image, and license endorsement deals. This year, if once you start kind of having one government agency treating student athletes, hundreds of thousands of people as like college um, employees, it's it's gonna be there's gonna be a lot of disruption. There's gonna be a lot of like uncertainty. There's gonna be a lot of different um, hecticness. Partly because like the NLRB does not regulate public schools, but public schools and private schools compete against one another in college athletics. And so you're going to have that kind of dynamic going on. It's, 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 there's a lot of different like ways it can go sideways. It loops in um, international students because they have student visas that prevent them from certain types of outside employment, which could potentially be implicated. And then you either have to work around that, or you're going to have this weird thing where like international um, student athletes just don't get the same uh, employment rights or benefits because they would jeopardize student visas. It's just like it, it's been bubbling for many, many years. And I kind of think this year might be where it starts to kind of tip in one direction. And it, that when things have been changing in, co in college sports these recent years, it, it really like ripples out for kind of years to come. And I think it's pretty soon going to bubble over. I think there's a growing acknowledgement that the situation is untenable. And that's why actually like the NCAA and college administrators are trying to go to Congress to get the rule, to get legislation passed that would kind of like shore up their kind of standing to keep the system more or less as is. Um, and because of divided Congress and also the president stated um, labor positions, it seems kind of difficult to imagine that getting through this year. But if power changes hands in Washington, you never know how things will shake out. But um, I think this year might be a little bit of a tipping point in the college sports world. Yeah. I, let me just say, I think you've just suggested a new metric. We will know when the labor, that the, that the labor movement has really succeeded in America when the University of Alabama football team has a union. <laughs> that will should be the measure because, you know, the Dartmouth men's basketball team with all due respect to them, I, I actually looked at this. They have not been to the NCAA tournament since Dwight Eisenhower was president of the United States. So if this were the Duke men's basketball team, or if it were, I guess USC is a is a very serious uh, athletic program as well, and they're competitive in what used to be the Pac-12. Um, but yeah, I think that's going to be a very interesting, big, big story. And, and the organizing that's been successful on campuses um, with gaudy votes among graduate workers, among uh, support staff, among adjunct faculty. There's an election at NYU among contract faculty, which I think they're going to win overwhelmingly. 
yeah, I think that's a sort of a ripe area for organizing. And let me just say, I knew this was going to be a great conversation because I so enjoy talking to the two of you individually, and I knew bringing you together was going to make it uh, even better. Thanks so much to Lauren Gurley and Nick Niedwadzik for joining us today. Just, just fantastic. Uh, and we also appreciate your keeping us focused on workers and worker power in your reporting and the great reporting you do allows us to really see inside the story. So thanks so much. Thank you so much. So was I right? Did you learn something? I learned a bunch, as you could tell during the course of the discussion. Two really smart people who spend their days calling around, learning about labor stories, and then reporting them to us in the public. Thanks to all of you for joining us for this blogcast and sticking with us all the way through to the end. You can connect with the Power at Work blog team in a lot of different ways. We have pages on LinkedIn and Facebook. Just search Power at Work blog. You can find us at Power at Work blog on Twitter X and threads. You can find us at Power at Work on Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon as well. You can find all of the Power at Work blogcasts on YouTube at the Burns Center for Social Change channel. Most important, to the go to the front page of the Power at Work blog and subscribe right now. That's the best way to keep up with our latest content. Thanks again for joining us. We will see you right here on the blog again very soon. Thanks. <laughs>